are you telling me? But enough talk about the past, Mike. It's time to talk about the past. Mike? Ah, uh, uh, the past! On today's episode, episode three by my count of Are You Telling Me? A history podcast with Mike and Steve where we dissect bad, bizarre, or otherwise noteworthy <laughs> historical events to figure out why people don't know about them. Uh, does the public school system fail us? Probably. Uh, does the private school system take advantage of us? Definitely. Steve, I think it's just because there's so much. There's so much that's happened. How do you pack it all in into 12 years of school? I don't know. I'm able to do it in the better part of an hour, and I'm an idiot. So <laughs> someone, someone else's fault. Oh, I can't wait for all the things for you to tell me today, Steve. That's what <laughs> I, I am. am so, I am so excited to sit here and listen for the entertainment of others. <laughs> I must say up front that I, I, we've, this will be the third episode, and one out of three had a theme so far. Because <laughs> episode well, three doesn't, again. <laughs> that's okay, Steve. I think part of it, too, is the way I just, I explained it earlier was that as I'm discovering this information, the themes sort of occur to me. But if the theme occurs to me too late and I've already done 24 hours worth of research, then I don't go back and start all over again with the theme unless I have ample time. What I'm saying is I'm bad at time management. And that's why this yeah. episode doesn't have a theme. That, oh, oh man, if only you could fit the theme of time management into these three things you're going to tell me today, Steve. I did. <laughs> Failure number one. Now, today we're going to talk about a bunch of different things that don't have anything to do with one another. It's a mixed bag today, people. Yeah. And maybe at some point a secret thread will become aware uh, uh, available to us that I didn't pull on before, but... Maybe I'm gonna you'll search. I'm gonna search for this thread. I'm gonna look for it, Steve. I'll let you. T I'll let you know. I'll let you know if I see it. All right. Well, that uh, that's as good a place as any to start. Uh, and uh, today on, are you telling me? I'm telling Mike a couple of things. And the first thing we're gonna talk about, our first topic, involves. Hold on to your hats, everyone. Put that coffee down because you're not gonna need it. Because our first topic is gonna involve the discussion of the Wyoming Valley and the Susquehanna River. Oh, baby! In, in, in a in a vignette, I'm gonna call the war between the states of Pennsylvania and Connecticut. <laughs> I almost didn't use that because the war between the states is the thing that like Southerners use to describe the Civil War to try to like yeah. whitewash it a little bit, and I didn't want to say I agreed with that notion of what the Civil War was called. So, uh, but otherwise, it, the joke wouldn't have worked. So I went with it. I'm taking so, it back. <laughs> taking it back. We're technically going to be discussing the three Yankee Pennamite Wars, which are a series oh. of wars of wars, quote unquote. They're more like skirmishes, except for one very horrible battle that takes place between, at the time, the colonies of Pennsylvania and Connecticut before they were states. Hey, what's the difference between like a skirmish and a war? Is a skirmish if it's just like a day and it's just real it's quick? Like, like everyone's, I guess a skirmish would be like the backyard barbecues of war. Like everyone shows up and has a good time, and then maybe by the end of it, some members of the family got into a fist fight, and everyone left kind of pissed at each other. 
So it's it's a lot less bloody. Is it yeah. more like a like a giant bar brawl, barbecue that brawl? Maybe gets out <laughs> of hand a little bit. Yeah. So as I as I said before, we're gonna the discussion is gonna be of a very specific region of uh, the north of the U.S. Here, uh, the Wyoming Valley and the Susquehanna River, or what we know today as northeastern Pennsylvania, or the Scranton Wilkes-Barre metro area. I have a friend uh, who actually told me about this, uh, one of my best friends. Uh, I'm going to shout him out, Rob. And he, what up, Rob? He told me about this particular event, and I had no idea until I did the research. Uh, and then I asked him earlier today because I couldn't remember how to pronounce Wilkes-Barre or Wilkes-Barre. Uh, and he says the people who live there pronounce it wrong, and it's actually Wilkes-Barre because one of the gentlemen who founded the, the, the city, his last name was Barre, but nobody pronounces it that way. They all pronounce it wrong on purpose, I guess. And this whole time, you know, the new people moving in are like, yo, where can we get some of those berries here in Wilkes? I hear they got great berries. And then this poor guy's like, God, God they no, don't no because it's actually it's actually kind of a barren hailscape. So it's actually it's it's. Uh, it's, you know, like iron, it's Coke County, you know, Coke, Coke country, essentially. It's like the heavily it's industrialized, well, it's a, uh, like the, from the from the mines, from like steel and iron mines, you know, the Coke, oh, okay. you know, that kind of Coke. Um, <laughs> not the other two that we talked about. Well, after about, our so. last episode, Steve, I'm like, damn, I thought Coke County was Nazi Germany. I'm no. like, <laughs> um, it's a heavily industrialized, you know, like the Rust Belt, like the heart of the Rust Belt. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't back when we we're talking about it. Um now, from the very beginning of European intrusions into North America, this region was in heavy dispute. In the 1600s, much of what we know as Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut was actually called New Netherlands, and it was a Dutch colony, Ooh. with the English settlements of Virginia and Massachusetts to its south and northern borders. Uh, England's King Charles II, however, rejected all Dutch claims on North America, which was funny for the Dutch because they all lived here. Uh, <laughs> They they might they had a thing to say about that, uh, but he rejected all Dutch claims to this particular area and granted three smaller Massachusetts adjacent colonies a royal charter for the area now called Connecticut in 1662, and then several years later, following the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars, the Dutch would just basically say, "All right, whatever, take it, it's yours," and cede all of the New Netherlands to the English. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So are you telling me, Steve? I don't think this warrants that, but okay, go ahead. No, no, but I find it very interesting that New England used to be New Netherlands. I mean, that's why a lot of our, that's why a lot of uh, where we live in the New York City area has a lot of, like, there's Amsterdam Avenue, there's a forts named after um, Dutch settlers and generals. There's with, A lot of that still remains. And Steve, I'm sorry, I just can't help it sometimes. It's just, uh, it comes out when I need to know something. Like Manhattan used to be called New Amsterdam. Or New York what? used to be called New Amsterdam, rather, the New York area. Could you imagine living in New Amsterdam City? Um, New Amsterdam City! <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be called that. It just kind of, it's, it's kind of confusing. If the area is New York, as in it's the new version of York an area in, in the UK, why is it New York City and New Amsterdam City? It just seems kind of redundant. I don't oh, know. You're distracting me, Mike. I love it. redundancy, Steve. <laughs> distracting me. We have other stuff to talk about. 
Okay. So, so the Dutch ceded all of New Netherlands to the English. However, either drunk on the victory of warfare, or just having plain forgotten, or he didn't actually care to know what the geography of the area he now owned was, in, 18, in 1681, Charles II granted part of that same land that he gave to Connecticut in a charter to Pennsylvania's founder, William Penn, in part to pay off debts that Charles owed to Penn's father, who was a very famous uh, English uh, uh, sailor, I believe, was, a, uh-huh. was an admiral. Um, now, for the better part of the 17th century, this overlapping land wasn't much of a problem because both colonies waged war on the people who actually lived on the land, the Susquehannock uh, tribe. Uh, the, the which one? The Susquehannock. Susquehannock. The, Sus- the Sus- Susquehannock were, were an independent but Iroquois-speaking tribe, so they, ah, were not, they, okay. were, they were not part of what was known as the Iroquois Confederacy, which was a loose uh, conglomeration of a bunch of disp- di- di- uh, different tribes in this uh, sort of tri-state area that all spoke the same language. Um, this struggle would end with both colonies... Uh, both colonies ended up purchasing the land from the Iroquois Confederacy. And then following that, the colonization of the land would be again slowed by the outbreak of the Seven Years' War between England and France. After all of that, however, got sorted out. In 1768, the Iroquois Confederacy threw a wrench into things by essentially withdrawing their sale from Connecticut and instead sold the whole of the land in its entirety to Pennsylvania. At this point, however, it had been you know, 20, 30 some odd years, uh, or over 100 years, actually, and uh, a bunch of Canadian settlers had already founded a bunch of settlements, including the what would become the town of Wilkes-Barre. I gotta ask, Steve, and I, and please look, if we, and if we need to take, the, I'm not, is this where the, is this where the term Indian given came from? Where they're like, oh, hey, Iroquois Confederacy, I thought you said we had this land. And they're like, nah, we're going to give it to Pennsylvania instead. Why don't you go talk to them? Here's the <laughs> thing, Mike. I I, I think... I given, know it's not a I, politically correct term. I, I'm not endorsing I think, it. I'm I just think saying. given circumstances, we can pretty much just, at this point in time in our history, looking back, you know, removed from the vitriol and the anger that we would have probably felt had we lived in the time and experienced the time, Removed from all that, we can safely look back on it and say, you know what? Whatever they wanted to do, let them do it. Cause, god damn. I will no, I will say, but what a what a what a smart play though. Like, cause then they they got the two states pissed at each other, right? Yeah, just you know what? Let them. And this wouldn't be the first time someone pulled that particular ploy on the states of Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. So. Thus, in 1769, commenced what would be known as the first of the Panamite Yankee Wars. The Panamite Yankees. The Yankees being the Connecticut Yankees, and the Panamites being the inhabitants of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I didn't know they went by Panamites. The, at this point, they did. Um, oh, they stopped going. They, they're done with that. They eventually they just after they became the state of Pennsylvania, they eventually just started calling themselves Pennsylvanians. Ah. Now, over the next 20 or so years, settlers from Connecticut and Pennsylvania would engage in skirmishes with one another along the Susquehanna River. Basically, the Susquehanna River runs through the middle, the middle of this valley, the Wyoming Valley, and it splits the areas uh, that, you know, the splits the two sides from each other, essentially. Um, That's a lot of angry barbecues. Yeah. In the first, <laughs> in the first war, quote-unquote, 
Uh, Connecticut Yankees set about building two forts, Dirk Fort Durkee and Forty Fort. Uh, Forty Fort. Forty Fort? Forty Fort, yeah. Forty. <laughs> because the, the fort was founded by 40 settlers, so they called they called it Forty Fort. Hey, there's 40 of those guys. Hey, it's 40 Fort. Shut the fuck up, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Nick couldn't even do anything. They cut, the Panamites cut him off, or the Yankees cut him off four, 300 years ago. For making that joke. Uh, the Panamites then proceeded to build Forts Wyoming and Ogden on the other side to stop the Yankee encroachment on their land. And skirmishes between the two sides would follow. Often bloodless, though uh, throughout the two years the war took place, two Connecticut men and one Pennsylvania man would be killed in these. And ultimately it would result in the Battle of Rampart Rocks on Christmas Day in 1775, where the Yankees defeated a Panamite force of 600 men, forcing them from the land. Uh, the, the British Parliament then ruled that, quote, no Connecticut settlements could be made until the royal pleasure was known. And in 1771, George III did just that, confirming Connecticut's claim. The uh, royal Not 1771, sorry, 1775, I think. What's the royal pleasure again? Basically, what it's the, up to the, uh, whatever the king decides to do. At this point, the king being George III uh, confirmed Connecticut's claim, and these military and political victories led to the Connecticut establishment of Westmoreland County, which would eventually, spoiler alert, become known as Pennsylvania's Westmoreland County. Okay, Steve, hold on. We, uh, time to digest. You threw a lot at me just now. So, Steve. Are you telling me that there was this plot of land on a river between Pennsylvania and Connecticut? It's actually a whole valley, the Wyoming Valley. A whole valley. valley. We're talking that like a, a big-ass river, woods on either side, untamed wilderness, the, the works. It's, every, it's everything uh, a, a person in Long Island is dreaming of to, to one day move to. Sure, right? I guess. Or their, or their second home. That's where they yeah. <laughs> find it. Oh, yeah, I get where you're coming from now. This was the Poconos. This is what the Poconos is oh, now. Oh, it's the Poconos. Yeah, yeah, okay, great. So, uh, in any case, so we got this We got this valley, and it's uh, and it's got the Susquehanna tribe. Am I saying Sus that right? Susquehannock. Sus Susquehannock. Susquehannock tribe, which were... Which was a tribe that spoke the language of the Iroquois, but they were just doing their own thing. Correct. They weren't part of the Confederacy. Right. Correct. So they're getting their asses kicked by both Pennsylvania and Connecticut, who are, and this is everyone's English, right? Yes, at this or point, the, everyone's English. Yeah. Because English the Dutch, English. the Dutch, the the Dutch just gave it all to England because England's like, oh, we're taking this, and they're like, really? And they're like, yeah, and they're like, okay. So then they. That was a so, very succinct. <laughs> Description of both the second and third Anglo-Dutch wars, Mike. Good job. <laughs> okay, so so then they the Iroquois Confederacy steps in, and like, oh, we gotta help out our boys here. Like, okay, listen, guys, we're gonna give it to Connecticut, right? They said they sold the land to both Connecticut and Pennsylvania. Oh, they just sold it to both of them at the same time, yeah. like. <laughs> and then later on, take and then, we'll take the gold from both y'all guys. Thanks a lot. Here's your land. And then all of a sudden, a couple couple Pennamites walk in, a couple of Connecticut dudes, and they're like, "Hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This is my place. Uh, you know what? I think we're gonna have a little backyard barbecue, and we're gonna throw you through a table. Let's go." 
So then we had skirmishes like that up and down the whole River Valley. We had a table, ladders, and chairs match between <laughs> the Yankees and the Panamites. <laughs> I would love to see it just reenacted through wrestling. Like <laughs> I like to view most combat through the through the point of view of pro wrestling in my head. And then King George III is like, hey, this is all going to be decided by my pleasure. So get ready for some, some love in Connecticut. Because that's who he decides to give the, it to. The Iroquois were like, fuck Connecticut. It belongs. We're selling the whole thing to Pennsylvania now. And then years okay. later, King George III was like, screw you guys. It belongs to Pennsylvania. Or it belongs to Connecticut. Get out of there, Pennsylvania. And then they established uh, Westmoreland County. Okay. That's where we are. That's where we are. Oh, and not to forget to mention the the clever name of Forty Fort, the Forty, 40 Brave, the Brave, the, the Brave Boys. There, <laughs> forty of them were like, "Yo, American ingenuity at its finest." <laughs> what are we gonna call this for? It ah, there's forty of us, Forty Fort. That's what it's called. <laughs> I've got people to be oppressing. Uh, hey, actually, there's forty one of us. Yo. <laughs> Ricky, so, you're not allowed here, someone man. Kick, someone kick Ricky's ass out. I'm tired of his shit. Um, so things would come to a head in the midst of the American Revolutionary War in the form of... Now was the first war between so the that Yankees. Was the f- that was the first Yankee-Panamite War. Now we're going to get to the second one, which, was, which took place in the middle of the American Revolution uh, in the form of the Battle of Wyoming in 1778, also known as the Wyoming Massacre. Oh. So <sighs> the trouble began when Wait, British... What? My geography's so bad, man. I'm trying to think where Wyoming... I thought Wyoming wasn't even... Wyoming... This is called the Wyoming Valley. The state of Wyoming would eventually take their name from the battle named after the valley. Oh, okay. I was like, they're not near there, right? And, and I don't know why, because... <laughs> Things are about to get real horrible. <laughs> the, okay. the trouble oh, began boy. when British officer Captain John Butler came up with an idea to exploit the resentment between the Connecticut and Pennsylvania militias. Butler mustered a force of British regulars, Iroquois warriors, and disgruntled Panamites who had been forced off of the land that they thought that they owned uh, in the first Yankee Panamite War. What? So he formed all these. The uh, he mustered a, a you know some five six hundred uh, people uh, of, of all these all these groups put together, and he marches them through the Wyoming Valley, and they proceed to defeat the Yankee forces of Colonel Zebulon Butler, two different <laughs> Butlers, two different but- two Butler different versus Butler on That's the same more. on different sides, Colonel Zebulon Butler, and in their retreat. The Iroquois would force them into a bloody crossfire between the Penamites and the British regulars. So, like, they they hassled, you know, they're in retreat, they hassle them, they basically get them into a kill box where you got the disgruntled Penamites on one side and the British regulars on the other, and they basically just open fire on them. On the Yankees, on, the on Yankees, Zebulon. The Connecticut Yankees, on uh, Colonel Zebulon Butler. For the rest of the day, the Yankee survivors would be hunted down, tortured, and killed. The death toll of which was to be placed at anywhere between 150 Connecticut Yankees to 340. Holy crap. 
So, Steve, are you suggesting to me that, that should have been the name? That should have been the name of the show. <laughs> are you suggesting to me? <laughs> no, are you are you telling me that? Uh, so, uh, not not Zebulon, but what was the other butler's first name? I'm trying to get these butlers figured out here. I know, right? Colonel, it was Captain John Butler on the English side and Colonel Zebulon Butler it's on Colonel the Z- American Patriot side. So Captain Captain J. Butler there, he seems almost like kind of a, I don't know, maybe like a Lord Sauron, you know? Like he's got a whole mixed bag of different people he's throwing in there. You know, he's got his orcs, he's got his, his uh, wizard set of gone against uh, the things and then uh i don't know who else does zoran have besides orcs did he have uh <laughs> i feel like he had this has been this... a reading of the silmarillion by mike russell <laughs> i'm just saying like it's fascinating I and mean, he had all these different groups coming together to fight as well i mean he got the iroquois confederacy fighting with him the iroquois like... the iroquois fought on either side depending on who was promising what because the Iroquois just wanted their land back and to be left alone and for the most part they fought on the British side because they knew if the Americans won they were not going to they were not going to adhere to any sort of agreement or treaty that they had formed in the first place you know because of the fact that we never ever did ever or would (laughs) proceed to ever do Steve are you suggesting that now I can ask that um would have been better if England had won the Revolutionary for, War. In, in, for the, ca- the, in the cases na- of a lot of the native tribes that fought in that war, yes, it would have been better off had the Loyalists and the and and the English won. Because Steve, the Amer- you- I'm just saying, I'm just saying, they mostly fought on their side because, first of all, they had been living in this country with the Americans. And basically, just going to war with each other over and over again. They there was a lot of bad blood between colonists and the tribes that they were displacing. So it's not like you're gonna like side with the people you've been fighting for the last twenty years. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But I like this but this Butler versus Butler battle. Butler though. v Butler. There's a lot of Johns <laughs> and a lot of Butlers. Like it's hard. But to But Zebulon. Like, where's he? Is he from outer space? Was he the first alien? What's going on? Yes, Colonel I know. Zebulon Actually, that, Butler. That might be from, offensive. I don't know. from planet. From Planet Pennsylvania. Um, Zebulon, that's just an interesting... I love names with Z, man. That's a very, like, I'm not going to forget him. (laughs) Did he make... Did he survive, or did they get... Well, they got him. Uh, I believe they got him, yes. I believe they got most people. I wonder if it was Butler who got him. He's like, there There can can be only only one. one. (laughs) He raises his katana in the air. There can be only one, and then cuts his head off. And then the quickening happens, and then that's the that's the Highlander reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so towards the end of the war, of the Revolutionary, uh, Revolutionary War, the question of ownership still remained. And this time, there's a of lot this of... this valley? It's yeah. still about the valley? Yeah, it's still they like, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Because now, the last... the last Because remember, like, Charles II gave it to both of them. Then they fought with the uh, the... Uh, Iroquois Confederacy and the Susquehannock over it, and then a different English king gave it to someone, and now we don't care about what any king said because now it's America. Fuck kings! Yeah. We're free! 
And someone's gonna die until I set up my nice house on this river with the beautiful view and all the nice wilderness and animals. Yeah, That's- so, so now we've got the Continental Congress taking a crack at it. And boy, they're sure, they sure are good at making a lot of decisions and prosecuting a war, and they're really good at it. Boy, howdy, let me tell you. <laughs> so they took a crack at it, and in 1782, a court appointed by Congress declared the Wyoming Valley belonged wet, right and true to Pennsylvania, which sparked the third and final <laughs> Panamite yankee War. Now, they, now, at this point, I kind of got to side with them on this. Like, the Confederacy sold the whole thing to Pennsylvania— they got their asses whooped in that one war. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Butler, Captain J. Butler took things a little too far with the torturing and murdering like 150 to 300 people when, you know, they could have just been like, I'm t- we're, take- we're taking it. But, but we're... They, I he, mean, don't get me he, wrong. Captain, but- Captain John Butler was totally doing this the whole time. No, come on, you guys. Stop. Everyone be nice to each other. Oh, darn it. I guess I can't do anything about it. That was totally what was happening. But anyway, so the third Panamite yankee War breaks out, right? The victorious Pennsylvanians, led by Justice Alexander Patterson and his rangers began violently clearing out all Yankee settlers and taking control of their farms and land. Over 2,000 Connecticut Yankees, mostly women and children, were forced to wander the Wyoming Valley in the dead of winter, homeless and abandoned, suffering from starvation and the cold. Realizing that, hey, maybe now that we're all part of the United States together, we should not be doing this uh, now to our fellow states— the Pennsylvania government sent a Colonel John Armstrong and his militia to restore order. His first step was to disarm everyone, including Patterson and his rangers. And as soon as the weapons were turned in, Armstrong arrested 46 of the Yankees, but then did nothing to Patterson and the Pennsylvanians, because Armstrong is also a Pennsylvanian. Pennsylvania was like, oh man, we really messed this up. Quick, send in more of us to fix things. And you know there's nothing you can do against Armstrong once you've handed in your weapons because he's got the strongest arms of anybody. Exactly. That's where his name came from, obviously. (laughs) So, oh, my God. Wait. So, so Steve, hold on. I need another digestion here, okay? So you're telling me that after the Congress had constituted that Pennsylvania was the, the true the true heirs of this valley, they go in, uh, Patterson goes in, Alex, Alex Pat, and he uh, is a real asshole about it. Mm-hmm. Kills all the dudes and goes, hey, ladies, and if, you know what? If you don't want to marry anybody here, take your kids and get the hell out. Look, see you later. And... They're wandering the valley, beautiful valley, not so nice in the winter when you got no food, though. And um, that's a big problem. So did they save the people? Did they go like the militia that sent in by? Um, no, they did nothing to Patterson to 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 like they arrested the Yankees. They did nothing to Patterson. They took all the weapons. Yeah. They arrested the Yankees from Connecticut and. They're, the people they're starving. Like, they're like Alexander the- Patterson, slap on the wrist. Don't be so naughty next time. Which then pissed off the Connecticut, uh, the the Connecticut tights, the the Yankees. 
so open war breaks out a third time as Connecticut, and this time Vermont, send troops in to help the settlers battle back and get their homes back. Ah, led so by Vermont a, had le, seen enough. Yeah, led They're, by a Connecticut man who's all, who, named also John, John Franklin, who organized the, the Yankee Connecticut men and the Vermont people into an army and then drove Armstrong out of the valley and burned one of the forts, Fort Wyoming, that ha they had held up in as they retreated. So at this point, everyone's just like, God damn it. Stop this shit. This is so stupid. So in 1787, everyone was like, okay, we need to fucking calm down, guys. So the Pennsylvania Assembly granted the Connecticut settlers the rights to the lands, but maintained Congress's declaration that the land was Pennsylvania. So they were like, the Connecticut people that settled that land can come back in, take their homes back, and live without fear of Pennsylvanians kicking them out again. And Connecticut, for their part, then dropped their claims to the valley altogether in exchange for forgiveness of war debt and in exchange for land to the west of Pennsylvania that they would also eventually give up when it became Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and the final nail would come in 1799 when the newly formed federal government decreed all Yankee settlers that remained in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania citizens, no longer Connecticut people. Well, and yeah, so what, you know, and that's what I was just thinking, Steve, like, what, people are murdering each other over a title. Like, why don't they just call themselves Pennsylvanians at that point? You know what, I'm gonna, I like this valley, I'm gonna be a Pennamite. <laughs> before, before the Civil War, Mike, not this one, the real one, before the real Civil War, there was a lot more people consider themselves as the citizens of their state. Their state was their identity. So they weren't Americans. They were Pennsylvanians. They were Virginians. It wasn't, in fact, before the Civil War, when you would discuss the United States as a proper body, you would say the United States are, as opposed to the United States is. It was only after the Civil War that we began calling it that. So they, that was their identity was, no, screw you. I'm a Connecticut man. And it's like, no, fuck you. You live in Pennsylvania. You're Pennsylvanian now. But eventually everyone was just like, I'm tired of this. Let's fine. Just give us our houses back. We'll be Pennsylvanians. And that, I just want my house uh, in the valley. <laughs> just wanna, I just want to hang out, man. Oh, stop making was, my wife yeah. and kids go trek through the damn snow. So that was the end, finally, Jesus. thankfully, of the Yankee-Penamite War. Sorry, Penamite-Yankee War. I don't want a bunch of Pennsylvanians to fucking email me or yell at me over the phone. So, no, and, how, and that was over the course of how many years? That was course over the course of, of like two, like it started in the mid-1600s and ended right before, like in 1799. So like 150 some odd years. Oh my God. Yeah. Over just a little patch of land. Yeah. Uh, uh, to be fair, Mike, it was over the Poconos. Have you been to the Poconos? I mean, it's beautiful Very out there, nice. Steve. Very nice. <laughs> but we're going to leave the verdant forests of the Poconos, and we are going to travel now to uh, jo jolly old England. Uh, jolly the, old England. The United oh. Kingdom in a segment I'm calling The Unnecessary Bravado of Dr. Robert Liston. So. Okay. Let's doctor let's, doctor trying, hold on yeah hold on, hold on, on to your desk <laughs> so doctor doctor Robert Liston Mike I don't know if you know this was considered the world's fastest surgeon in the 19th century wait <laughs> doctor what what's his last doctor name doctor Robert Liston 
Not Robert Lipton. Liston was a <laughs> hell of a surgeon. Okay. He was the world considered by many one of the world's fastest surgeons in the 18th century. Is that a good thing? We're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a big part of it. So, uh, born in 1794 in West Lothian, Scotland, so he's Scottish by by birth, uh, the son of a village minister, and trained under anatomist John Barclay, appointed house surgeon at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh by age 20, and admitted to the Royal College of Surgeons in London by 22. So by 22, he's like a big shot. He's got, you know, he he's made his way through... Uh, you know, a lot of schooling and has become very prestigious in a very short amount of time. Uh, so Dr. Liston, known as a, he is considered, he's a tall, broad, and intimidating man standing at 6'2", which is very tall, Ooh, very hey. tall for that that time. Yeah, it's you, that's you type, that, that's you That's height. me, yeah, that's me if I was, uh, if I was a surgeon. Uh, maybe, <laughs> well, kinda. Um, known throughout his life for being Argumentative and disdainful of privilege, a later a later admirer of his uh, a later admirer of his, the English author and surgeon Richard Gordon described him as an abrupt. So I don't know why he's southern. Uh, <laughs> an abrupt, abrasive, argumentative man, unfailingly charitable to the poor and tender to the sick, who was vilely unpopular to his fellow surgeons at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. He relished operating successfully in the reeking tenements of grass market and lawn market on patients they had discharged as hopelessly incurable. They conspired to bar him from the wards, banished him from banished him south, where he became professor of surgery at University College Hospital and made his fortune. So he got kicked out because he was too busy taking care of the sick that all of the hoity-toity surgeons didn't want to bother with because he would ruin their reputa- reputations. <laughs> They were like, have you, they had their own death panel back then, huh, Steve? And they're like, well, why are we wasting time on these people? Yeah, except, <laughs> except it kind of existed, unlike the one thing you're talking about, which didn't exist. It was more just like a, like a, a high society thing and not like an actual panel of people. I like you're like, no, don't even go there, Mike. Don't go there, Mike. <laughs> that's, our, that's our new spinoff. Don't go there, that's- Mike. I don't want to talk about that. That's where we talk conspiracies, and I'm like, what do you? <laughs> so now you asked a few a few minutes ago, is it a cool thing that he was the world's fastest surgeon? And the answer is yes, because Liston was a surgeon in the last era before anesthesia, asepsis, and blood transfusions, and because of this, survival in surgery depended on the speed, accuracy, and controlled bleeding of the surgeon in question, which is where Liston excelled. Boy. Because you got to think, Mike, you're being, you're being operated on without any anesthesia. You're being held down. You're fully awake. People are sawing your limbs off. You're kicking and screaming. The longer you're on the table, the more painful it is. And in some cases, people are just straight up getting, like, freeing themselves, punching the doctor, and running out of the surgery room. Well, or running out of the hospital. Hopping, hopping out, hopping they out of the a, hospital. <laughs> they had a limb removed. Yo, so uh, so this guy was, uh, I mean, to be recognized for your speed and accuracy, that sounds pretty good. It sounds it, like. It was. It must, oh, man. Yo, I can't imagine sawing off a person's leg, <laughs> like helping them. But like, you got a lot of people holding them down. It, that must be a weird feeling, man. Yeah, weird. That's how I would describe that feeling. 
Not absolutely <laughs> terrifying. This guy's going to kill me if he gets up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, but before I get into that, uh, a few oh. notes about Liston himself. Uh Liston proved to be on the cutting edge of his profession. The cutting edge of his profession. Oh, 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 Steve. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, often, <laughs> you know, Nick's gonna lie. I know. <laughs> often keeping to what we would recognize today as common sense procedures, but at the time was considered ludicrous by all of his peers. For instance, Luda. Luda. Is that, yes. Is that? Did he shout that every time he started cutting into somebody? Like, uh, no, he shouted a different thing, and I'll I'll get to that in a second. Oh. Um, I love how you feed into my bits. Good job, Mike. <laughs> so Liston believed, for instance, that surgery should be a last resort and that the extension of pathological knowledge could lead to the avoidance of unnecessary surgery. So he was all about try to do anything you possibly can to cure the patient before you need to start cutting into them. Okay. That, and I, like that internal seems... medicine, things like that. But his colleagues were like, you're a surgeon, right? Your job is to be a surgeon. Why would you want to avoid surgery, idiot? Stop making, stop being lazy and do your job. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you afraid? You afraid to pick up the knife, Listerine? Let's Listerine. go, <laughs> man. They could have used some Listerine because at least stuff would be clean. Yeah. Um, which gets brings me to my next point. Despite the fact that Liston operated under operated under a time period uh, before the discovery of microorganisms or germ theory, he had his own he had a personal sense of hygiene and a desire for order, which actually bled into his work. Man, oh God, you just I'm can't just, help I'm just yourself I can't that. I can't help myself. I can't stop. Um, so. Nobody knew about germs or the fact that things could get infected. It would just, it like, infections would happen and no one would be like, no one would know why they happened. They were just like, oh, maybe I, maybe I missed something somewhere. But nobody hey, knew it was caused by germs. Do you, uh, are you surprised that there wasn't like a massive panic attack among people when we discovered germs and we're like, Oh, we're covered. We're covered in these little, these little micro, there, there, microorganisms that are all over us and in our bodies and there all over the place. And <laughs> there wasn't at the time because most people thought it was ridiculous. So, like, <laughs> these they, doctors are crazy. Yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm covered in a bunch of things I can't see. Whatever, man. Which yeah. part of that part of that very human thing of like. The thing you're saying, if I accepted it, would drive me mad. So I'm just going to choose not to believe you for my own sanity. The only thing that I that's there that I can't see is my God. Okay? Yeah. That's all. <laughs> but despite the fact that nobody actually knew any of this yet, Liston was so, like, hygienic in and of himself that he brought it into his work. So he accidentally was very good at being hygienic when it came to surgery. So, like, he, for instance, he washed his hands frequently, which wasn't even regular practice for surgeons until 1847. Uh, you, they just come in with shit all over their hands, yeah, fucking chicken did. wing sauce. Like, oh, man, I just had, a, had some great wings today, man. He what wore, are we doing? Yeah, he wore, he wore a clean apron. He wore a clean apron every operation. So with surgeons didn't ever change their aprons because they thought the accumulation of blood and filth was evidence of their experience and ability. So they were basically, they were trophies. Like, all the shit on their on their smock was like, look how many surgeries I did, I'm so covered in blood. Steve, 
Are you telling me that the nastiest, dirtiest, bloodiest, filthiest, covered in every human fluid imaginable surgeons who didn't clean up after themselves were regarded <laughs> at a higher tier level? Yeah. Because of the sheer amount. Yeah. They were like, look how many surgeries I did. I'm covered in shit. <laughs> you know what? You think there was like one surgeon who's like, man, you know what? I gotta, I gotta climb the ranks a little faster. I'm, I need a messy surgery. Yeah. <laughs> I need to, I need oh to, no! I, what happened? Oh, oh boy, that aorta artery here. Shit. <laughs> um, some other things he did. He shaved surgical sites, which nobody did. He used clean sponges, which nobody did. He gave the first manscape. He yeah. Uh, lipotomy. <laughs> Remember we talked about lipotomy. Yeah, the, the other lipotomy. Day? Oh, good for Dr. List, not Listerine. I want to call Dr. You know, Listerine. You say Listin, and all I can think of is Listerine. That's all I want to say. Uh, he also soaked dressings, bandages, and such in cold water, which was silly because surgeons of his day would soak them with salves that they thought would that they thought would make people heal faster, but actually just infected the shit out of them. Another what? famed doctor, another famed, hold on, another famed doctor of that era, Dr. Frederick Treves, which people may or may not know as the doctor who discovered and treated the elephant man, observed of his time period, there was no object in being clean. Indeed, cleanliness was out of place. It was considered to be finicky and affected. An executioner might as well manicure his nails before chopping off a head. That was that was what Dr. Liston, op- that was how he worked. That was the... That was what everyone else was thinking at the time that he was doing this. You know, I could just imagine that one executioner was like, you know, I could really go for a mani-pedi. I think that sounds yeah. lovely. I am sick of getting this blood on my hands and just having I to accept it. I can't get it, it out from under my nails. They're so long. Look look at it. Just look at these nails. Um <laughs> So listen, listen. Was oh, honey, we're gonna get you something looking nice. I have some baby blues, okay? Ba- baby blue on those nails, and <laughs> and the toes. I think are a nice ruby red. You're gonna be feeling great. <laughs> you will never see the blood because it'll always be red. So listen was also the first surgeon to eventually, when it became when it came over to Europe, utilize anesthesia in in Europe. Uh, afterwards, he was recorded to remark. This Yankee dodge beats mesmerism hollow, which is a reference to the fact that hypnotism was only just recently discredited as a way to control pain during surgery. So the use of ether to knock out a patient during surgery came from the U.S., and up until that point, they were just having people trying to hypnotize people before surgery. This won't hurt. Okay, like look at the clock. Here we go. Or wait, what are they? What they use the watches or the swirly black and white? Oh, they all things? had pocket watches, so I'm sure it was pocket watches. The pocket watches, huh? Um, Dude, what's your what, what's the deal with hypnosis? Is it, have we decided that's a a thing? Like it seems like a little, you know, just getting people to think really hard about stuff, and they go, okay, I'm gonna just do that. I don't know. Well, maybe we'll go into the history of mesmerism on another. On that another sounds episode. like a good one, Steve. Okay, so. But in any case, so ether in the U.S. was used to knock things out, and he was— He was the first just, person to use it in Europe, and he was like— First one in Europe. He was because, like, man, this is really good stuff to use. Let's stop hypnotizing people. <laughs> he was also one of the first 
for one of the few surgeons of his time to reject the idea that the pain experienced during surgery enhanced healing, which really just sounded like a make. It was really just a thing that surgeons made up to be like, you're fine. Trust me. It, it's better. It's better that you're that you're fucking screaming like an idiot for like an hour to two. For, I can't go oh, fast. The more it hurts, the faster you'll heal. Yeah. Oh, you're strong, right? <laughs> like You want to be strong. So Liston was oh, also damn. Liston was also an inventor, and in fact, he invented the modern leg splint, the modern scalpel, and he invented the first one to invent a series of forceps with a locking mechanism. Up until then, you had to like apply pressure to the point constantly when you use a forcep. So if, like using a forcep to like hold a vein closed, you had to like have one hand free and you had to leave it there and like put pressure on it. Oh, so then, and then ugh, that's going to slow things down. Now when you're going one-handed with the scalpel or whatever tool you're using, because mm-hmm. you're but, too busy holding it, yeah. But as And as I mentioned before, in, that, in this day, speed was the surest way to increase survivability. Because the longer the, the longer the patient was awake, the more likely they'd thrash and cause the surgeon to make a mistake, or in some cases just run right out. Richard Gordon, who I mentioned before, was a... a, a, a medical historian and a fan of Liston, referred to him as, quote, the fastest knife in the West End and claimed he could amputate a leg in 2.5 minutes and could perform other more minor surgeries in seconds flat. Dude, I want to see a Wild West, like, parody movie about about Dr. Listerine, the fastest knife-wielding surgeon in the West End. (laughs) In the West End. Gordon, Gordon, hold on. Gordon went on to describe the typical Liston surgery like this. He was six foot two and operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots. He had wellies on. He sprung across. Wellies, huh? He sprung across the bloodstained boards upon his swooning, sweating, strapped down patient like a duelist, yelling, "Time me, gentlemen! Time me!" to students craning with pocket watches from the iron railing galleries. Everyone swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of saw on bone that sight and sound seemed simultaneous. To free both hands, he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth. So he wasn't super hygienic, basically. He was better than most, but he wasn't quite there yet. I love that. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> but I, 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 I bring that up to bring this up. His speed and bravado were not always of benefit to his patients. And though he was the finest surgeon of his day, he was still fallible. In three of his most infamous cases, he A, amputated a patient's leg so quickly, he accidentally cut off the patient's testicles. <gasps> no! That's unacceptable, Steve. (laughs) B, B, there's two more. B got into an argument with another surgeon over whether a pulsing red tumor on a small boy's neck was a simple abscess or a carotid artery aneurysm. Pooh, Liston exclaimed impatiently. Whoever heard of an aneurysm in one so young? Flashing a knife from his waistcoat pocket, he lanced it. The boy bled out in minutes. Turns out it was an aneurysm, and he was wrong. And, Mike, in what was his most infamous and quite possibly apocryphal case, Liston performed a leg amputation so fast that he accidentally cut off two fingers on his assistant's hand. 
and <laughs> both the assistant and the patient later died of gangrene in the hospital because of no. it. Oh, no! In addition to that, the procedure was being viewed by a number of other doctors in close proximity. And while amputating, Liston accidentally swiped an elderly doctor's coat with his blade. The elderly man, thinking he had been cut open, went into shock and died. But he wasn't cut! No, he just <laughs> thought it was. Thus, Dr. Liston is said to have performed the only surgery with a 300% mortality rate. <laughs> Instead of saving one patient, he actually killed three people. So wait, 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 Steve, are you telling me the one of the regarded as doing so much research and understanding hygiene and keeping things clean and following a lot of regulations and ways and taking care of the sickest people and wanting to just be the best doctor he could be had some of the one of the worst worst surgeries to go down in history in fa- I mean, in fairness to dr liston his like his his rate of like patient mortality was one in ten whereas almost any other surgeon you went to was one in four so you had a one out of ten shot of dying under his knife, whereas if you went to any other surgeon, you were like twenty five percent likely to get killed. Oh my god, yo, you how mad? How mad was the dude? You think to got his testicles chopped off because he was going too fast? <laughs> I'm probably <laughs> mad. Oh man, you know what? This is wild, and and, and the fact he killed three people and what? <laughs> I can't get. Th- and the one guy died because he was so scared. That's what you're telling me, Yeah, Steve, he was right? an old man. He was like, just, I've been stabbed. Oh. Oh. Hey, you're fine, old man. Get up. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so that is the... He, that so is the, the t- guy holding his leg down gets his two fingers chopped off, too. Like, Steve, who would have thought the your greatest skill would turn out to be... Such a detriment to, to I don't living. know, Mike. There's probably some people who are really good at drinking and probably shouldn't be as good as they are at drinking. <laughs> Especially when they do it really fast. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of drinking, that oh, leads good us segue, to Steve. Thank you. That leads us to our third and final segment, which I'm calling Deadly as Molasses. So it's slow? You know, you know, well, no, you know the phrase, yeah, slow as molasses. This is deadly as molasses. Okay. Okay. I, I've explained it. So now it's funnier and more clever. Yeah, oh, oh, okay. So, so. our. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Our third. I shouldn't I, I always do that to you. <laughs> our third little historical trip takes place in the grand old city of Boston. In January of 1919, home of the Dunkin' Donuts and nothing uh, else. Dunkin' Donuts, you know, you know how I love my Dunkin' Donuts, Steve. Pa- go Pats! <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, go Pats, Boston. Uh, specifically, at the site of the Purity Distilling Company in the North End neighborhood of Boston. Uh, do you do you know anything about molasses, Mike? Have you ever used molasses in anything? Uh, I know molasses is. It's well, it's slow, and I feel like it's kind of got a. Is it is it used to make like some sort of food, like sugary stuff? It's it's so, sweet. It's used as sweet, a right? as a baking agent. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very viscous, very sticky, and is it's it green. A, n- I no, it's brown. 
Okay. Uh, and it's actually 40% more dense than water, and that's going to come into play a little bit. Uh, most people tend Ooh. to think of molasses in terms of a baking ingredient, but did you know, Mike, it is also a vital ingredient in the production of alcoholic beverages. It's fermented to create ethanol, which is used both in drinkable, imbibable alcohol and also munitions. So think about the, the next time you drink. The stuff you're drinking could also be used to make guns or to make bullets and artillery shells. You know, there's something that just makes me feel real strong when I'm having a drink, Steve. That's got to be it. <laughs> but at their harbor, at their harbor side, so you got the Boston Harbor, right? The harbor side commercial street facility lived a tank used to offload molasses from ships for later transfer. The tank stood 50 feet that tall. That tank was the slowest tank there's ever been. In most respects but this, the tank stood 50 feet tall, 90 feet around, and stored 2.3 million gallons of molasses. Now, Did you say it was 50 feet? 50 feet tall. Tall. It was like, 50, three, that's like a, it was three or some odd stories tall. Uh, 90 feet around, stored 2.3 million gallons of molasses. Is this where the phrase comes from? No, trust oh. me. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, like, Quite that, the tank, opposite. that tank moving to... Oh, wait, was this tank moving pretty fast? <laughs> so our story specifically takes place on January 15th, which is notable as the day before the 18th Amendment instituting prohibition came to pass. Oh, my God. Uh, it was winter in Boston, which always an sucks. Day. Anyone in, anyone who lives in Boston will tell you, winter sucks. But on this day, the temperature had actually risen above 40 degrees, which was a dramatic increase from the prior day where it was, you know, like freezing, below freezing. Ooh, yeah. And into the tank was pumped a new load of molasses, which had been warmed prior to it to reduce its viscosity. It should, all be, should also be mentioned that this tank was very poorly constructed, and rarely tested. It had only been filled to capacity eight times since it was built, and the person who oversaw the construction never filled it with water to check for leaks, and also had no engineering and architectural experience. It was just a guy that worked for the company. They were like, Bill, go... There's, I can't remember what the guy's... I didn't write the guy's name, but he was like, Bill, go fucking build us a tank. All right, guys. Okay. Uh, I think it, uh, you know, it's got stuff around all sides. Uh, I'm looks, pretty sure something could fit in there. It looks tank-like uh... to me. Over the years, it's real tall, guys. I'm, I'm 50 feet. <laughs> Over the years, it saw use. It leaked molasses constantly and badly, which the Purity Distilling Company ignored by painting the tank brown to hide the leaks. Didn't fix it. They were like, "Oh crap, this thing leaks like a sieve." Ah, paint it brown so nobody notices. <laughs> and a later analysis would actually show that the tank utilized steel half as thick as it should have. Now. Whatever the cause, the thermal expansion or the quality of tank, at 12.30 p.m. on the 15th, the tank exploded and collapsed. Oh, my God. Witnesses reported feeling a great rumble like that of an elevated train passing. The ground shook and a great, war, uh, a great roar went up, a thunderclap light bang, and the sound of a machine gun, which was the sound of the rivets shooting off from the thing as it buckled under the pressure. What followed was a wave of molasses, 25 feet high and moving at 35 miles per hour. What? A wave that, remember, is 40% more dense than a wave of similar water would be. 
my God. This wave tore ass through the north end of Boston, carrying with it the panels of the tank, which crashed into the struts, uh, the struts of the Atlantic Avenue elevated train station. Buildings in its path were carried off from their foundations and crushed under the wave. Blocks were flooded as deep as three feet with molasses. Or as the Boston Globe reported, and I won't do this in a Boston accent because it'll really <laughs> undercut the seriousness of the issue. Molasses, waist deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was an animal or a human being, it was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Oh my god, so it became a giant fucking glue trap out there. A giant wave of it. A giant wave of glue. A wave! I mean, because that's going to knock your ass down. People in its path were picked up and hurled and drowned. Others were crushed by the debris that it carried. The wave picked up a truck and hurled it into Boston Harbor. And what's worse, as the recently warmed molasses came into contact with the colder open air, its viscosity increased dramatically, which in turn increased its weight and its destructive power. Even after the wave leveled out, the increasingly frigid air turned the molasses nearly completely solid, trapping people buried under it like insects in amber. Remember fucking Jurassic Park, Mike? Remember yes! the fucking mosquito in amber? That was fucking people. That was people. That was Hun- Bostonians. That was hundreds of Bostonians. <sighs> oh my god, Steve, are you are you telling me that because of Bill not making a suitable tank, this thing explodes into a giant? molasses tidal wave taking out a a whole like northern part of boston yes mike that's exactly what i spent the last five minutes saying (laughs) and then people are getting caught in this stuff because it's sticky and it's heavy and like even if you like walked outside after it already came through you might get stuck in it and then you'll you trip and fall face first in this shit you're like dead like that's it like all told 150 were injured and 21 were killed either by the wave outright or from being smothered alive. A Smithsonian article describes one experience. Anthony D'Astasio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo school, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he were surfing. Then he grounded, and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out and opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. And I should mention, Mike, the fourth sister, it should be mentioned, Maria D'Astasio, was one of the 21 victims of the wave. (gasps) No. Wait. But he saw, so three of his sisters were looking at him. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was fine. And he, they found him and were able to get him. But he couldn't, he couldn't respond to his mother's cries of his name because he was, his throat was clogged with this hardening molasses. Oh, my God. God. Now, Steve, <clears throat> I got a fucked up movie idea out of this fucked up story you told me. <laughs> there's already a book about this. I don't know that there's a movie. There's a surfer. There's a professional surfer. He's the best surfer in the world. And, he, and he's looking for It's just not thrilling enough anymore, man. He needs to go the extra mile. He wants to be the first surfer to surf on molasses because after he... Here's this story of Boston. So he he, re, 
He goes out in the middle of the desert and he recreates the ticking time bomb of molasses explosion. That's, and, he, and that's how 25 people died in Santa Fe. Why, they cried. Why would you do such a stupid thing? The tide was calling, baby. That's, that's my life. Take that shit to San Diego where it belongs. So the first responders to the disaster were oh, actually nearby recruits from the Massachusetts Maritime Academy pulling survivors from the muck until they were eventually joined by the Boston police, the Red Cross, and Army and Navy personnel. They searched for hours. They purchased, sorry, they, they searched for survivors for up to four days before finally stopping. And in fact, several months after the disaster, other missing victims would wash up because they had been hurled into the Boston Harbor by the wave. So they just straight up hurled a whole truck too into yeah, that, right? Yeah, a truck and a bunch of people that they just went missing, couldn't find them, and they washed up on the on the in the harbor like months oh, afterwards. My God! Um, in the aftermath, uh, cr- uh, cleanup crews use salt water from fire hoses to loosen up the molasses and then sand to absorb it. It took weeks to clean the immediate disaster area and longer for the rest of the city. Boston Harbor was brown for the rest of the winter and the spring, only clearing up during the summer months. Even after the general cleanup, for months after, Bostonians would discover molasses in train cars, the seats of streetcars, in the in the handsets of pay telephones. Everywhere and everything they touched was fucking sticky. Just sticky and gross. Oh, God, I thought the New York subway system was bad, but that, the, riding the T after it's covered in molasses, get out of here, man. Riding the E train. And the, yeah. So blame for the disaster was very obviously thrown at the feet of the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, which is the company that owned Purity Distilling. Uh, a a lot of authors uh, who talk about this event uh, describe that uh, the, there was a possibility that was never proven that they overfilled the tank on purpose because they were worried about prohibition passing the next day. They were trying to like get shit in and out as fast as they could so they could get as much booze made. But it was never totally proven. Uh, a class I'd, be- action- I'd believe it. I'd believe it, though. A class action lawsuit, which was actually one of the first in the country up to this point, was brought against uh, the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company. Uh, the company claimed in defense that the tank had, of course, been blown up by anarchists because the molasses what? would have been used in munitions. Do you sense <laughs> a pattern? Corporations mess up, and all of a sudden, oh shit! It must have been anarchists, right, or commies, or something. You gotta pass the blame, Steve. You, pa- you can't hold the blame. Oh man, and you know anarchists are too easy to blame, right? Because they, they they probably would have been like, uh, all right, yeah, sure, we did it. Fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah, fuck the man. Anarchy, <laughs> anarchy in the U.S., baby. But uh, the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company lost that fight after three years of litigation and were forced to pay out to the families of the victims. The disaster and the subsequent lawsuit also led the way toward modern corporate regulation, including laws dictating construction oversight by licensed architects and civil engineers, as opposed to just some dude who works there. (laughs) Which is one of those things you're like, wait, there wasn't a rule? to do that no man it was the fucking wild west back then companies just got away with shit all the time all right first person to get something that's 50 feet high and we can shove all this molasses in gets a pay raise let's go (laughs) or better yet 
doesn't get fired and have to doesn't. live, have to like fucking live on the streets. Cause also there's no safety net. Cause fuck everyone. Oh, that was before the good old unions came through. So today the area is occupied by a uh, parks and rec complex called Langone Park with a historical plaque at its entrance commemorating disaster. The effects of the disaster literally lingered in the air for decades afterward, as stated by journalist Edward <clears throat> Parks. The smell of molasses remained for decades a distinctive, unmistakable atmosphere of Boston. So, Steve, could you tell me uh, if you think it would be... Because I think this rides the line of whether you're being um, offensive or if you're being sympathetic, if you were to visit this plaque and pour one out for your homies, your Bostonian homies out there. <laughs> I think Bostonians still take it seriously, which is kind of why I didn't just straight out when I did the quotes use, <laughs> the smell of molasses remained for decades in a distinctive, unmistakable atmosphere of best and go pats. Like, that's the whole reason I didn't do that. <laughs> so... I'm just trying to think of nice ways where you could like signify remembrance and it's pouring out of a, a liquid beverage that has molasses in it the right the right way to do it. Or or should you just I don't stick know, with they're flowers? Bostonians. I'm pretty sure they beat the shit out of me. <laughs> fellas, fellas, oh. fellas, I meant no disrespect. Please let us adjourn to the neighborhood Dunkin' Donuts for a roundtable discussion. And a peaceful pumpkin spice latte among peers. Gentlemen, please. A peaceful pumpkin among peers. I love that. <laughs> but that's all I got, Mike, on today's episode of Are You Telling Me? We so, got ourselves a good old-fashioned disaster, a good old-fashioned war, massacre, and some good old-fashioned uh, testicle amputation. Test. I mean, which was un unreal. I will say, Steve, the things you have told me today... I am never going to forget about about Dr. Listerine or Liston and how... Steve, the things you tell me today, I'll never forget. Like Dr. What's-His-Name and Professor <laughs> Who's-It's. <laughs> but I, and one thing I wanted to say about the surgeon guy, I really, I feel like he wanted surgery to be an Olympic event. I think he really took pride, you know, pride in it. And I, I mean, he did if, ask people to time him. Time me! Time me! Gentlemen, time me, gentlemen, time me. You might just sitting on the table being like, this motherfucker really asking people to time him? Like, <laughs> No, I'd be like, why, are you really fast? Good. Please fucking go now, now before I lose my nerve. <laughs> oh, shoot. So, yes, yeah, so between the Penamites and Yankees killing each other, Mostly the Yankees getting their asses kicked, the the surgeon, and now uh, and molasses. You know, I deadly like great... And I'd like Jesus. to take the I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to uh, both uh, Bostonians, citizens of Connecticut, and Pennsylvania for any and all disrespect I threw your way this episode. But maybe I'll learn something. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> all for all for one all for one upstate New Yorker <laughs> come uh, come New Jerseyite to to learn something maybe. <laughs> New Jerseyan, New Jerseyite. What do you What do you guys call yourselves? Oh boy, you know what? I I I still call myself a New Yorker. Oh, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> no, Steve. I don't know New Jerseyite. That could be fun. 
I'll find something. Uh, I'll find something terrible that happened in New Jersey at some point later. Well, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to hear about it. That's great. <laughs> but uh, that's uh. it for us here at Are You Telling Me, uh, a podcast uh, we do when Nick's not around because uh, I don't know. History has its own sort of puns, and we don't really need him for that. <laughs> Forty Fort baby. Forty Fort baby. <laughs> uh, if you've enjoyed our dive into uh, some historical malfeasance uh please tune in to uh our episode here uh our previous three episodes and of course our parent uh parent show the song tops your report which pa- uh, how do you gonna say parent parent podcast because it podcast. The-, <laughs> the pp uh pp <laughs> the prime podcast the song tops your report we of course will go back to dissecting bad bizarre otherwise noteworthy music figure out how it died uh, but uh, this has been a new episode of Are You Telling Me? I'm Steve Trollinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at YourManTrollo and on my personal website, StephenTrollinger.com. Mike? Yes, you can find me on my Instagram at MrMikeRussell.com. That's MrMR.dot. And uh, Steve, thank you so much for all these wondrous things that you've told me today. Well, You're I guess well. there weren't so wondrous. A lot no. of it was deadly. <laughs> most of it was, most of it was, te- all of it was terrible, actually. <laughs> but certainly intriguing. But and, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said every time I have a beer now, I'm going to think about what happened in Boston. I'm going to think about all those people that died in Boston, and then I'm going to drink it anyway. <laughs> but for Mr. Mike Russell, I'm Steve Trollinger, and we'll see you guys next time, I guess. Wait, what do we say at the end of every? Uh, uh, the, 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 take care. Yeah, take care. <laughs> I don't know. We got to really work on this. <laughs>